We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ivy Nation Sports Talk, welcome to the show. Glad to have you with us here today, along with Jesse Styers. I'm Sean Styers, and um, I was just doing my talking Jesse <laughs> off the Cowboys ledge before we started, and uh, people were asking about you yesterday, Jess, uh, how you were doing after <laughs> after Sunday night. Do you want to I just turned my phone off? I just. I, I turned my phone off after the game. I didn't want to be bothered. I knew it would only make me more upset. So I didn't interact or start ta- thinking about the Cowboys again until yesterday after I got done uh, with work. So, yeah, I just, you know, the best thing for me was to just turn my phone off and separate, decompress for the rest of the evening. Salty's Not think about for, it. Salty's looking for a way to pipe funeral music <laughs> into the show for you. Oh, I've got a feeling that rapid fire, we, you know, I, I, we saved the Cowboys stuff for later in rapid fire today. I told everybody yesterday, and I think it was Salty who was asking, you know, if we wanted to talk about Cowboys, Niners, and, and Bengals, and Bills, and, and all that. And I said, well, I'm saving it for when Jesse shows up tomorrow, because I know there's going to be a lot of it. I can see you're still happy. <laughs> I'll agree with you on this because, you know, like you were just talking, I'll just, let's say this off the top. It's, you know, similar to Notre Dame. Like when Notre Dame loses a college football playoff game by a couple of touchdowns, it's the end of the world. Whereas other teams, you know, like the the last few years, whether it's Alabama or Clemson or whoever the dominant team was, LSU a few years back, everybody, everybody was losing lopsided College football playoff games, national championship and semifinal to those teams. But when it happens to Notre Dame, it's all about, well, Notre Dame doesn't belong here, all this different stuff. You don't hear that same stuff with these other teams when they get beat in some of those lopsided games. And it's the same with the Cowboys right now. Just look at TV. You know, the world is acting like like the Cowboys have never lost a game. And I was just telling you, like, The bigger disappointment and the bigger flop is Josh Allen and the Buffalo Bills. But no one's talking about that right now. The whole world is just enveloped in, oh, is is Dak Prescott the guy? Dak Prescott's a loser and all this different stuff. And I'm not going to give Dak a free pass, but things get inflated when they are certain teams. You know, Cowboys, Notre Dame, Yankees, Red Sox, whoever they have to be. That's where I get frustrated because all my friends are texting me like, well, this is this is why, because Cowboy fans are annoying. It's like, I'm just a Cowboy fan. I'm not the obnoxious, over-the-top Cowboys fan that you see, you know, like these people on TikTok and Twitter and stuff. Like, I, I just want to be treated like a normal fan. Like, I don't, I don't, I know. Good luck with that. I know. Good and that's, that. why, that's why it's hard because, you know, again, it, How'd it's. The, how'd your parlay? How'd your parlay turn out? Um, I had one that really the one that hurt the most is I had like eight legs and Tony Pollard needed 25 yards and he got hurt at 23 yards in the first half. So that one really sucked. Um, after divisional round, I am seven and 
three on playoff predictions. I'll take that. That's, you know, I'm still winning. But uh, Moneyline Parlay did not go well this past weekend. <laughs> no, no. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Again, we'll save we'll save NFL talk for rapid fire. Of course, we have some Notre Dame topics, as always, in rapid fire. But we've got a bigger topic to talk about today. And it looked like we kind of confused some people. If you would, as we get started, smash that like button. We do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, it helps out the Irish Breakdown channel, as we always like to say. Subscribe, rate, review, comment, leave a five-star review on on Apple or you know wherever you happen to uh, to get your podcast. We do appreciate it, and it helps us out greatly. But hit the uh, like button tonight on YouTube while you're here. So last summer, I think I might have confused some people with the title of this show based on a couple of different comments. Last summer, I wrote about, and we talked here on this show about, former NFL executive Bill Polian and his 11 guidelines for selecting a successful football coach. Of course, Polian, this is Brian's father, Brian Polian, former Notre Dame special teams coordinator who's now down at LSU. His father, Bill, pro football Hall of Famer. He was the architect of the Buffalo Bills' great teams of the early 90s. He hired Marv Levy in Buffalo, uh, later hired Tony Dungy when he was in Indianapolis with the Colts. And Bill Polian... He's, he's written two books. He's got a chapter in one of his books titled Deciding on the Decision Maker. And so Polian has these 11 standards he uses uh, when he's evaluating a potential head coach. And again, we applied him to Marcus Freeman last summer before the season started and kind of said, okay, what might this look like for Marcus Freeman? Does he fit this bill You know that, that Polian is talking about? Polian says, Hiring the right head coach is the most important piece to building a successful football team. Get it right, and you have a good chance of being successful for a long time. Get it wrong, you'll likely find yourself going backward in a hurry. It'll cost you two things. You never get back time and money. So that's kind of the nutshell of where we're going with this today. Are you excited about this today, Jess? Are you ready to do this? What do you think about this whole exercise we're about to get into? I think this is a great exercise. And I, I again, it, it breaks down all aspects of what it means to be, you know, a head coach. And I think that there are very uh, important pillars that will be outlined here, and it should be fun to talk about each of them. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. Yeah, and I mean, this summer, again, we did it before the season started, and we went through this point by point, all 11 points. I felt like Marcus Freeman fit most of these pretty well, but now we have some more tangible product to look at, some more tangible material that we see from Marcus Freeman's actual first year of being a head football coach. That's what we didn't have when we did this going in. We didn't know what he would look like as a head coach. Well, now we do. We have a full season. Of it. So number one standard Bill Polian talks about is organization. 
Polian said it ranges from how he organizes the playbook to his practice plans, year-round staff assignments, uh, to his off-season programs. And he says each of those areas and many more must be laid out in writing, explained completely, step-by-step, especially when a candidate who's never been a head coach before. So, Jess, what do you think about how Marcus Freeman held up to standard number one organization? Yeah, um, I, I in, in terms of organization, I thought that the team always seemed organized. I thought that the, the coordinators seemed organized um, and, and the game flow seemed organized. You know, I, I'm not sure between, you know, practice plans and playbook. Like, obviously, you know, I don't see any of those things. But when we're talking about just purely being organized, I don't see any disorganization out of someone like Marcus Freeman on a, you know, on a on a game to game basis, because really that's ultimately all I see, right? Like I don't see practices. I don't see the playbooks. I don't see what he's handing out to his players and stuff. Well, like that's that. what most of us see. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great point. Like we don't get to see behind the curtain. The closest thing to behind the curtain is when we get to go to a few practices and stuff like that. Right. So then you, you kind of look at to me, what you look at organizationally wise on game days is are your, you know, are your staff in the right places? Do you have your guys up in the press box in the right places? Do you have your personnel groups on the sidelines in the right places? Are you subbing guys in and out efficiently and effectively? Um, do you have, you know, do you have your second defensive line unit waiting? Do you have your wide receivers, you know, waiting to switch out and come in based on personnel settings? And we never saw issues with that or delays in that. Right. Notre Dame wasn't running guys onto the field last second. Notre Dame didn't take delay of game penalties. Notre Dame didn't, you know, execute poorly out of their out of their sets and stuff like that. So for me, I think he's you know, I, I don't have anything negative to say about his organization in terms of what I can see based on kind of the things I just laid out there. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, getting to see some of the practices, even though it's a different coach, there was always a practice plan in place, which is what you would expect. They go from one station to the next efficiently, and all the coaches knew what they were supposed to do. And my thought in the summer on this was kind of what you were talking about. Like when you we had the blue gold game to kind of hold as a as a test run. For a game, and obviously we had the Fiesta Bowl, but again, that was a little bit different when you've got like three and a half weeks or whatever to prepare for it. But you didn't see any mass confusion in the Blue Gold game with the stuff you were talking about, sub packages and guys getting on and off the field, like guys knew where they were supposed to be and what units they were supposed to be on. And we saw an extension of that going into the season. And I think you can kind of add like recruiting to this a little bit as well, because like they're crisscrossing the country and they're always coming and going and there's a lot obviously going on there and planning the weekends and stuff like that now not all of that of course is on the head coach even though he is a much bigger factor in recruiting than the previous head coach but he's got a guy like Chad Bowden you know who who handles the majority of that but it's also knowing the right guy to have in charge so I I think that uh, from everything that we've seen he seemed to pass the organization standard with flying colors I guess is what I'd say so number two standard that Bill Polian has for his head coaches when he's hiring a head coach, leadership. And this is, you know, it's like leadership coaching. Like if you want a good head coach, leadership, they kind of go hand in hand. Get what, Before we go on to that, Michael says he may have been too organized. Interesting. And, you know, like maybe did some things need to be looser, <laughs> you know, like adjust on the fly. Yeah. As for plan of action, you know, being able to be able to adjust. And I think that uh, that's kind of in part one of the standards that we have come up a little bit later. So save your thoughts on that. But for leadership, Polian says, does he have the philosophical approach, verbal skills, physical presence, stability, and courage to lead and motivate the coaching staff, the players and the support staff? So what do you think of that one, Jess? Um, I actually think that Marcus Freeman is one of the best leaders that Notre Dame has uh, had over the past, you know, coaches, players, um, all of it. I think that Marcus Freeman is a tremendous leader. Um, and 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 for some of the reasons that Polian, you know, outlined and what it means to be the leadership role is, you know, his, he has excellent verbal skills. There are no, I don't, to me, at least from what I've heard, what I've seen in press conferences, comments that he's made. There is no ambiguity to, you know, what needs to happen in order to get better in order, you know, to potentially 
his how where things stand uh, with his players. I think there's also you know there's always some sort of good skills in terms of communication and the physical presence of just being up there and being the guy who's going to take the brunt of the comments um, and not you know not allowing his players to kind of have to take the fall um, for a lot of things. So I do really like Marcus Freeman as as a leader because of his courage. I like the way that he motivates his players and coaching staff. Um, and again, I, I just think that he is just really good with his words. I, I think that he is, he reminds me a lot of someone like um, the rhetoric that like someone like Barack Obama used to use. Uh, and, you know, whether you liked him or not, I thought that Mr. Obama had a very good way of being able to talk and be able to uh, careful. You know, his You're rhetoric. bringing politics into this show. There's a no <laughs> politics fly zone on this show. It's just, so. not, it's just rhetoric. I the, the way that you talk to people is rhetoric, and I like. He's succinct I like is his what rhetoric. you're saying. He's succinct, and yeah, yeah. Um, how would he compare? How would Marcus Freeman compare to maybe some coaches that you've had along these lines? With all the stuff that you've been talking about, would you put him head and shoulders <laughs> over most of the coaches you've had? Yeah, I would, especially. It, at the college level, um, I felt that I had some coaches who um, wanted certain things but didn't lead in a way that would produce kind of what they were looking for, if that makes sense. Because I think you have to lead in a way uh, – and, and it's one thing to kind of you know say some things, um, but you have to lead in a way that shows that you want to back up the things that you're saying – and I think Marcus Freeman does a tremendous job of that. And I've not always um, experienced that same thing. Okay. Interesting. And I, I, as it applies to Marcus Freeman, I mean, from the get-go, we've seen that he's the point man in recruiting. You know, like if you if you start with there, because that is obviously the foundation of Marcus Freeman. It's It starts with his recruiting and, you know, some other things that go into the recruiting. But like, from the time, from the minute he took over, he was holding these daily staff meetings, hanging out with the grad assistants, you know, that kind of stuff. Make it a point to be in the quarterback room with those guys. And, you know, he let his assistants do their jobs rather than micromanaging the assistants. Now, again, you know, like to Michael's point that he was talking about, maybe, you know, there is, you know, some, th there's kind of a learning curve potentially and maybe how much he needs to, you know, not necessarily take over, but inject or insert himself into uh, certain things. So those are those good nuts, or like, what are you what are you munching on over there? <laughs> Just some popcorn. I haven't. I didn't get the chance to eat lunch today, so I'm I'm pretty okay. hungry. Great. So, but he also, you know, never shifted blame, never pointed fingers, and I think that's a big part of leadership at either players or assistants when things went wrong. So I think that's. That, that, that's a big thing. And again, everything we've seen points to, you know, really big check mark on the leadership front. Standard number three per Bill Polian is communication. And what Polian said, can he teach or is he a lecturer? A teacher gets everyone involved. He's able to illustrate his lessons with real life examples, sometimes funny parables, gets his students invested in what he's teaching. A lecture just stands at the podium. And Again, this might be tougher to gauge from the outside, but you know, can you think of anything you know maybe that that applies to this from what we've been able to witness? Yeah, and I, I honestly wish that Marcus Freeman kind of took over more during the season in some of those games where they struggled and communicated with his players and potentially changed some things. Uh, you know, took charge. A little bit more because I I don't think he wanted to kind of step on toes of his coordinators, but I think there's times where you as a head coach can step in as a teaching moment and communicate with your team because of the experience and the knowledge that you have. And an example that comes to mind was actually in the South Carolina bowl game when Prince Kali came off the field and you could see uh, he was having a, some sort of conversation with Prince Kali after he made a mistake in either setting the strength or not being lined up formationally. Correct. Right. And I thought that that was a tremendous example of how he was able to communicate with a player in live time and kind of fix or adjust, you know, what the problem was at hand. And it didn't seem like he was blowing up on Prince Kali. He wasn't screaming in his face. He wasn't purple in the face. 
it just seemed like he was having a just a conversation with him and trying to you know let him know how he can fix whatever his mistake was so that's what I would like to you know I don't think that that's just something that Marcus Freeman does in a one-off I'm sure that that is you know a reoccurring theme and practices maybe on the sidelines more than you know more so than we know so in terms of communication from a limited view I would say that Marcus again this is something that Marcus Freeman is good at but I'd almost like to see a little bit more of it uh, kind of going forward. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I think if you kind of get to the core of why Marcus Freeman is, has been a successful coach you know, to whatever degree so far and why he's come up the ranks so quickly, I mean, he's a great recruiter and he ultimately became a 36 year old first time head coach at Notre Dame. And it all starts with, his communication skills, I think, his ability to relate to people and that kind of stuff. He relates to people, connects with them. You know, like thinking back, I mean, this has been a while now at this point. This has been, I can't even remember exactly when it was now. I mean, it was in his Freeman's first year, but Braylon James, the wide receiver from Texas, when he committed to Notre Dame, I guess it's been like last spring, I think. You know, one of the first things that he talked about when, when you know, it was like, why did you commit to Notre Dame? He talked about Freeman just spending time with him, getting to know him, that, you know, that kind of stuff. And like there was that video, again, of like when C.J. Carr, back before he had committed, when he was visiting and he was camping at Notre Dame, you know, he's out there with C.J. Carr and, you know, he's, you know, he's joking around with him and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that, you know, again, uh, I'm not just applying it to recruiting but it's a big part of recruiting, the ability to communicate. And it seems like, you know, like, again, like there was communication with Drew Pine, for example, and Tyler Buckner about here's what's going on at quarterback as soon as the season ended. And Drew Pine, you know, that they communicated, I, I assume, in as respectful a way as possible. And Drew Pine didn't like it. He left, you know, Tyler Buckner is still here, but they, they told him, Hey, you know, we're, we're looking at the transfer portal. They, and, and, you know, like in Pine's case, like, you know, we're looking at potentially Tyler Buckner to, to play in the bowl game or, or start in the bowl game. So they were upfront. Sometimes the communication isn't always what you want to hear, but it's still there. They let them make their decisions and that's what they ultimately did. So I've got to think again, it starts in the recruiting process and we've seen, just a lot of of good examples of that, I think, along the way. Yeah, those are two aspects I didn't really think of, but definitely agree on is, you know, if you're landing these these big recruits, there's obviously got to be good communication between you, the head coach and the primary recruiting coordinator um, and these, you know, big time recruits that you're going after. And again, like you talked about with the transfer portal now open um, and being, you know, as large as it is these days. Um, there's got to be communication with players, you know, where they stand, uh, you know, like like someone like Drew Pine and just the upfront, honest communication. And so then both sides can make their, you know, make a, a decision that is in their best interest. So I do think that communication is one of Marcus Freeman's, you know, better attributes uh, overall. Yep. So standard number four that Bill Polian laid out is emotional stability. Can he function well under pressure from players, staff, ownership, fans, and the press is what Bill Polian says. And like, just based on one year, like it is night and day different from one coach to the next. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, in terms of the, the, the previous coach that there is more emotional or I should say better emotional stability or more mature emotional um, stability. But, you know, in terms of what we were talking about, can he functional under pressure uh, from players, staff, ownership, fans, and press? I do think so because you never see Marcus Streeman lose his cool in press conferences after the games, after the tough losses, you know, like the Stanford and the Marshall. And he's not getting mad at people asking him questions or kind of firing back, you know, quick witty comments at anyone he just takes them and gives you you know the best the best answer possible um and, and there's no more like I said this kind of played into what I was talking about um on the last one is 
he, th- there was no when, when guys make mistakes, there was no getting blue or purple in the face and right just exactly screaming at them for everyone to see, knowing and that everyone can see it. This is something that we had no idea before the season started how he was going to handle this because again, like going from assistant coach to head coach, there's a completely different level of expectation on you. So like maybe you can, you know, hide some things, especially publicly when you're an assistant coach that they come out like, you know, when you become the head coach and, you know, it was, it was all pretty much honeymoon phase until Ohio state and Marshall back to back. And obviously, especially Marshall, but like you said, unlike his predecessor, he didn't lash out when he started getting a few hard kept questions in the press conferences and the lights get a little bit brighter and the expectations ratchet up even more because now you've lost to Marshall in your third game. You started your, your career 0-3, but, you know, like you said, he never climbed down people's throats, never yelled at guys, you know, making mistakes coming off the field and all that stuff. Now, there are some people who wanted to see more from Marcus Freeman emotionally on the sidelines, but, you know, as as someone who wished he could have controlled things a little bit better himself sometimes <laughs> as a coach, like I would say, like I appreciate Marcus Freeman's calm demeanor because he's still, you know, he's got some emotion of his own just in a different way, you know, and like every coach has a different style. Tony Dungy, Andy Reid, Bill Walsh, Tom Landry, they all had more cerebral demeanors, not prone to emotional outbursts and stuff like that. And just because you're not showing emotion on the sideline doesn't mean you're not into things doesn't mean you're not doing your job you know whether it's motivationally or or whatever else there are a lot of things that have to be processed and and I think every guy who stands on the sideline and wears that head coaching hat is going to do things in a different way Marcus Freeman has his own way and you know yeah like like Michael said he's calm but he has fire when it's needed as well like we've seen him at practice chew on some guys in practice you know so I think he's got a really good balance. You know, I think that like emotional stability, again, is like one of his key attributes uh, along with the communication and the leadership. Yeah. And I, I think it says something to kind of what Michael Johnson was talking about. He is calm, but we don't see that fire. And I, I'm assuming that that fire comes out, you know, like I've seen some of those post game um you know, like when the, the Notre Dame football Twitter posts videos of them getting fired up and hyped up after the win and all that stuff. You know, I imagine those things go on. But Marcus Freeman is calm when he's needed to be, because I don't know about you, but when your coach is kind of freaking out or, you know, getting all fired up on the sidelines, it kind of provides some sort of instability yourself as a player. You feel kind of like not really secure or as sure in in your in what you you know, you've been practicing. at. if you see your head coach kind of, you know, getting out of line or kind of too fired up or too emotional. Right. So I, I do like to believe that he is calm when he needs to be, but then it is also kind of fired up, you know, maybe behind the scenes when we not, we don't necessarily see everything. Yes. Very true. Little, little interlude here. Salty says, um, I worry about the specter of domestic violence after such a loss. Has anyone seen the dog that used to run around in Jesse's background? Where is Henry these days? He, Salty is right. I don't think I've seen Henry for he's a little right. while. He's blending in on that. I'm trying to point to him on the end of that blanket over there. I can kind of so so he's just chilling on that blanket back there. Yeah, you could probably be able to see his little ears popped up. The blanket's white and he's white, so I can kind of see him back there. <laughs> All right. And and uh, Tommy, who's changed his handle to not Ryan's bully, says if Mr. Steyer's doctor is watching and reading the chat, just wanted to say thank you for the case, for the care you provided to him personally and his family. And his wife. <laughs> well, thank you, Tommy. That's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> I do appreciate you saying that. And I'll be seeing Dr. Turk next week, a week from today, as a matter of fact. So. All right, so there's a little mid, uh, mid-standard interlude. So on with more of Bill Polian's standards for hiring a head coach. Vision is the next one. It is standard number five. He says, it's the most important quality of them all. 
Does he have a clear picture of how he wants the team to look and play? Can he articulate it verbally and in writing? And now he had what he called his gold standard when he was introduced as head coach. It was like challenge everything, unit strength, right, competitive right, right, right. spirit, you know, like those things. And then he's also talked throughout the course of this season about how he wants an offensive and defensive driven line program. So it seems like his vision, you know, is is pretty solid. It's It's been pretty consistent, I think. What do you think about that? Yeah, and you beat me to kind of the punch on some of these things. The first thing that he did at his introduction press conference was talk about the golden standard and lay out his vision for how he wants the program to rerun, the type of players that he's looking for, and the expectations that he is looking to get out of his players. Um, and then again, he talked about you know the way his team is going to be run. He wants to be a team that is physical. He wants to control you know, the, the trenches on both sides of the ball. And he wants to establish, you know, a punch you in the mouth kind of run game and let things kind of feed off of, um, you know, feed off, feed off of that. I will say my only knock on the vision is sometimes the vision needs to be tweaked depending on what's going on in the moment. And right. I think that is the deficiency to Marcus Freeman's vision is he can't get too caught up in the vision. Right. But there's also, I'll, I'll, you know, spoiler alert. One of the uh, one one of the other um, standards is flexibility, and that's coming up in a little bit. So we will kind of address that when we get to flexibility. But I agree. Like there was some adjusting that went along. So maybe the vision is one thing. But again, I, I think he didn't get too locked in on saying this is what it is. This is what it's going to be. He was still willing to adjust. But again, we'll touch on that in flexibility. The next standard, though, is strategy. This is kind of an interesting one to me. I'll be really curious to kind of see um, what some of our listeners think about Marcus Freeman's strategy during the season. Is he mentally prepared to make decisions on the sideline or does he react, Polian said? Does he have direct responsibility for key st strategic decisions in other words, is he the guy making them or is he going to lean on somebody else? He's got to be the one to decide whether to go for it on fourth and goal. So how would you apply this, the strategy aspect, to what we saw from Marcus Freeman in season one? You know, I think that he's that guy that's going to make that final decision, you know, those ultimate decisions of are we punting the ball, are we going for two, are we going for it on fourth and one? You know, those type of decisions, I have no doubt that he takes charge and makes those decisions. I think the thing that I would put into question is the part, is he mentally prepared to make decisions on the sideline or does he react? And I think that sometimes he could be better at being prepared for adversities that potentially are going to arise and how he's going to respond to them because it felt like, Early on in the season, he was more reactionary rather than kind of leading the charge and being ready for maybe some obstacles that came his way. And I think that, again, is like the natural learning process of becoming a head coach where you have to realize you're the one who has to make those decisions now. And I think that as the season went on, we saw some more of that, you know, because like Again, it's the biggest difference between being a head coach and a coordinator or you're the one who has to make these decisions now. Like you can ask for input if you want, even though you don't have much input and there's really not even that much time to ask for input. But, you know, like his two biggest decisions before this season, but, you know, go back to the Fiesta Bowl last year when he decided not to try to score at the end of the first half and then going for it on fourth down in their own territory late in the game. You know, there were... There were no real major decisions that backfired during the season. They were solid on fourth down, like seven of 16 on fourth down. You know, like there was the fourth down play against Stanford that didn't work. Remember the run by Jaden Thomas that they tried on the end around of the jet sweep or whatever you want to call it. And the decision itself to go wasn't bad. I think what most of us took exception with with the play call, and that goes more on who's calling the plays than – deciding whether or not to go for it on fourth down. And, you know, like you had the fourth down, fourth and one against BYU that got stuffed. Like, remember, Audric Estime trying to run against an eight-man box just got blown up. And, 
you know, that didn't go anywhere again. Like going for it is not the bad decision. It, it seemed like he did a pretty good job along those lines. There were, again, there were no major like, whoa, what are you doing here? You know, why are you going for it here? Or why aren't you going for it here? And those kind of situations. So I think he did pretty good. And again, was able to adjust and seem to take control of more of those kind of things as the season you know, wore along. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now, as promised, we go to flexibility. It's the next standard on Bill Polian's list. He's, and Polian says, first, can he change the nuts and bolts of his program to adjust to circumstances without changing his approach to the fundamentals? Changing your tactical approach is not the same as changing your fundamental approach. Secondly, can he be flexible and take advantage of circumstances, or does he buy someone else's program lock, stock, and barrel? So what do you think about how this one worked out for him? You know, this is to me how I take this is, you know, is he is he flexible enough to come into a program like Notre Dame and willing to put a stamp on it on being something of his own? Or does he kind of fall into what the Notre Dame tradition is, what the Notre Dame standard is and those sort of things? And I thought he's been extremely flexible in the fact that He's not making excuses for the type of players that can play at the University of Notre Dame. I think that he wants to change kind of, you know, the excuses or these kind of standards of, well, you know, academically we need these things. And so you can't get enough out of these guys athletically and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I think he's doing enough of keeping, you know, some of these really good fundamentals but then also tweaking areas that Notre Dame has lacked in or maybe has limited them from taking that next step, you know, as a program over the last 20 to 30 years. And so I commend him on that of he is going to take the the base of it. You know, he's going to take a big base of it and then he's going to kind of add in his own layers and, and make it into what he wants it to be and be flexible enough to know that, he can make the changes that he needs to make. I hope that all made sense. <laughs> you know, for the most part, it, like I would say he changed the messaging early. You know, like when you talk about flexibility, he changed his messaging early when they lost to Marshall. Going into the season, finish was what they were talking about. That was kind of their mantra, finish. And that was a reference to you didn't finish. We didn't finish the Fiesta Bowl. So now we've got to finish. Well, finish didn't work out against Ohio State. And Marshall, and especially again after Marshall, the message changed to preparation and execution. And I think it's kind of a slippery slope when you start changing messaging early on. But again, I think that it shows that he's not too rigid and not too stuck in whatever idea he had in his head of what it was supposed to be and how things were supposed to go. When they didn't go right, he was willing to look in and say, "Okay, we've got to do this." differently and it's it's not just finished we've got to we, we've got to make sure playing and play out we're preparing and we're executing and it became again like you, you know you, you you still have a Stanford in the middle of things and explaining that I don't know but you know again like when you look at the way he did things his focus was less on who made mistakes and why the mistake was made, you know, and it, and it seemed like the Gator Bowl, he was also more involved, more involved on the sidelines 
during the game than earlier in the season. And I think, again, like as the season went on and he gets more gets more games under his belt and really play to play, you know, in 40-second intervals out there on the sideline, we saw him begin to adapt. And, and so I, I think we saw a lot of flexibility from him from start to finish over the course of the season, just the way he did things. How about ability to judge talent? He's Polian said he's got to be able to see potential rather than just saying this is college player A and this is college player B. He's got to be able to see what potential college player A versus college player B is. Now, again, Bill Polian, of course, was talking about hiring NFL head coaches, um, you know, as opposed – so he's talking about draft evaluation here, whereas, of course, with Marcus Freeman, he's a college head coach, so it's really about recruiting. And, I mean – Flying colors, really. He ends up with the number nine class in the nation with 24-star guys. And go back and look. There aren't any classes in recent Notre Dame history with 24-star guys in the class. And he's already got six four-star guys committed to the 2024 class. And, of course, some people would argue that what you know, a couple of those four-stars in the incoming class should have been five-stars as well. So, I mean, that is – there's no reason to, you know, even debate this. <laughs> I think his ability to evaluate talent and attract talent is very high. Yeah. And I think that you, that there's really not much more to say about this because he does knock recruiting out of the ballpark in, in such a, in, in the fashion that he does. But I will say another thing that I think adds to this is the ability to judge talent, you know, throughout the season. And I think that at times people were maybe a little frustrated, 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 uh, and, and because they wanted to see, you know, guys like Prince Kali play or Jalen Sneed play or, you know, et cetera, because of their talent, maybe compared to the other, other players. But there's, there's such thing as talent outside of just physical ability talent. There's mental talent. There's, mm -hmm. you know, knowing, knowing the game talent, those sort of things. And I think that that's an underappreciated aspect to, I think Marcus Freeman is, even though that some guys may, you know, talent is an, as a, as a com composite score in my, in my eyes, it's not just all about what you can do physically. And so I think that Marcus Freeman did a good job of taking players overall composite talent scores rather than maybe just looking at the physical gifts that some of these players might have. Yeah, and Tommy's saying how many 24, 24 star guys? Is that what I said? I don't know. Like he has six four star guys for the twenty twenty four class committed, according to what I've seen. So that's that's what I was referring. And I don't know if you were just joking or what. But <laughs> public relations, we're almost there. We've got three more standards to go in Bill Polian's eleven standards for hiring a head coach and. Really, Pullian says it boils down to can he handle himself when he's in the media maelstrom, you know, that he's forced to endure these days. And again, this comes with like how he stood up after losing to Marshall, how he stood up after losing to Stanford. And, you know, it, it this kind of goes to some of the earlier points we were talking about. I think it was with emotional stability and how he might react but the, the questions obviously get obviously get tougher when you lose games especially games that you're not supposed to lose like Marshall and Stanford but you know he didn't he didn't stand up there and beat around the bush and again he didn't point fingers he you know he was he was you know not blaming players he was not blaming assistant coaches now I think you know maybe again like there are times I think that that there are people who you know would would like him to lay blame at, at an assistant coach. But again, a good leader is not going to do that. He's going to accept the blame himself publicly and then handle whatever needs to be handled behind closed doors with the appropriate person. And, you know, like when you look at the fact that the coordinators were available to the media all season Man, long. Man, you're we got... taking my juice. <laughs> go ahead. I'll let you jump in <laughs> right now. Yeah, I mean. Ramble if I go on. Go ahead. <laughs> We talked to we talked about it a little bit earlier, and because these things kind of you know bleed into each other a little bit, 
But Morgan Streaming is tremendous about getting up to the podium and just answering all the questions, tough ones, easy one, hard ones, after the big wins, after the, you know, the hurtful losses, after, you know, the the, the decisions to maybe start this guy or go with this guy. And so this guy, he owns up to all of it. And I think that the cherry on top to this one is what you were just about to get into is not only does he do, you know, the prerequisites, but he also goes above and beyond and kind of gives more of his time to the media and gives more right. of his coordinators time to the media um, so that there can be transparency and there can be honesty and, you know, people can know what's going on. There's no hidden doors. There's no, you know, secrets or anything like that. So I think this is another one that he just knocks out of the park. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. Standard number 10 is player respect. Is his approach to discipline fair to his personal uh, bearing conduct and dignity, which encompasses worth ethic, temperament, personal habits, et cetera, generate respect from the players, not liking, but respect. And it seems like it does. But again, like this is something like, I think that you would, you would have been hearing a lot, like the fact that he was able to hold it together and keep things together after the Stanford loss, after, you know, the third loss of the season, turn around a couple weeks later and beat Stanford and, you know, be competitive, have every opportunity going into that USC game. Like the the way the way he held the season together after there was every reason for it to completely unravel for a first year head coach. I think I've got to look at that and and put a positive check mark next to this. Yeah. And another thing that I think of, or kind of the first thing that immediately came to mind when I saw this one was uh, from the, the the Michael Jordan documentary, and I know it's different because Jordan was a player amongst players, but to me, I think the concept still is, still holds true. I don't think Marcus Freeman asks anything of his players that he once has you know hasn't had to do himself. Or quite honestly, I, I think Marcus Freeman, if if you asked him to, he would get in there and still do it with his players. I think he'd run sprints with them. I think he'd put on the pads with them. I, I don't think that there would be anything you know that Marcus Freeman would ask of his team his players that he hasn't been asked of before or he wouldn't potentially still do, you know, himself these days. And I think that's a big attribute to him. And I think that's what there's a reason why after just one season, so many of these players were behind him and behind his back of wanting, you know, him to be the head coach. You had guys like Isaiah Foskey stay, you know, another season because he wanted to play for Marcus Freeman. I think that shows the level of respect that these players have, uh, for him and again it's just he's he's gonna be the first like imagine going into war um old, old war you know back in the day where guys would just literally get in lines i would put i would say that marcus stream would be that first line and he'd put everyone else behind him um in in this analogy i think that he's always going to be the guy to be up front and, and leading the charge um and, and always you know you know, be there for his players, essentially. And I think that that goes a long way for the respect that they have for him. I mean, the root of why he's the Notre Dame football coach is the relationships that he has with the players and and everyone around him on the team and the staff and, and, and everyone else. It's all built on that. So great point there. Um, last one, character. And Bill Polian said, it boils down to one thing. Do you want this man as a standard bearer from for your franchise? And I think after year one, with everything that we've just talked about, there's no reason to say no. It's, it's again, it's a pretty resounding yes for me. What about you? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a big time yes for me. And the reason why is I, I would be comfortable with someone like Marcus Freeman being head coach at Notre Dame for, you know, years on years to go. And I know that he went eight and four this season. And obviously at the end of the day, what matters most is winning. And is he going to be able to have a better year next year and pick up more of those wins? But I mean, when we're talking about character, I don't think that there's there that that there's anyone really better than Marcus Freeman. I, I I honestly could say that, you know, I don't know every head coach in America, but I'd be willing to put good money on it that character-wise. He's top five. He doesn't deal with, you know, people doing stupid things. He doesn't deal with his players doing stupid things. He held, holds them to high standards as men, as, you know, in the classroom, on the football field, 
And that's because that's the life that he lives outside of football. You know, these things translate over. And so when you think of Marcus Freeman, I I think of him as being one of the most high character people, coaches that I've seen in a long time. It's just he's he holds everyone to the same standard that he holds himself to. Omar is gone, at least for now. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't paying close enough attention to what Omar was was talking about there. For a while, I well, saw it's, just, it's just annoying because trying. why? Why do you come into a chat just to stir the pot and stir the trouble? You know what you're doing, right? Right. All right. Well, good stuff. Again, we did that last summer, and we kind of tried to predict and you know, like feel our way through what things could look like for Marcus Freeman. But now, you know, we've got a, a full season of him as head coach, so I think we have a lot better idea. And when you look at those. 11 points, I, you know, like if you were going to go scale of one to 10 on each of those 11 points, I think, you know, like there might be a seven in there, but otherwise I, I, think you're, I think you're talking about eights, nines and tens on most of them. Don't you? Yeah. When you, as soon as you said one through 10, I was like, I don't think many of these dipped below seven. I can't think of anywhere. I'd be like, man, that's a hard six. Um, but I, I would say, yeah, predominantly you stay between the eight, nine, and ten areas, and the, the seven areas like those those C ranges where it's average, but you need him to be above average, and those are the things that he needs to work on going on going into year two. Yeah, and again, having a season to be able to self reflect and, and look back, he's he's already shown that he's the kind of guy that he's going to work on his own weaknesses and, and get better at them. 